Amen. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning. What a blessing it was to have our missions focus last week and today. We are plunging back into this very helpful Old Testament book. It is a wisdom book. And Ecclesiastes is a book that throws two punches with the gloves of wisdom. The first punch is in chapters 1 through 6 where we're forced to observe life as it, it really is. Solomon takes us on a journey under the sun and, and forces us or makes us conclude that there's nothing that provides the answer for the, the nagging questions of, of life. Work and wealth and wisdom and pleasure are all temporary and, and vain and, and they may leave you with a, with a full stomach, but, but you also have a bad taste in your mouth, especially at the end. The only answer to life under the sun is life beyond the sun, and that comes through through Jesus Christ. And I think that he landed that uppercut quite well, don't you? Well, we've moved into the second half of the book. And so the second punch that Solomon throws begins in chapter 7. And in the second half of Ecclesiastes, Solomon works to apply many of the themes that he began with in the, in the first chapter. So you're going to hear some of the same repeated themes, but there's a different, there's a different purpose. There's a different thrust. In this second half of Ecclesiastes, Solomon deals with, with seeming contradictions, crooks in the road that that forces us to apply what we've come to see in the in the first half of the book. You might think of it this way. It's like the DMV road course for your, your learner's permit. You pass the written exam in chapter 1 through 6. Now you have to parallel park the car. <laughs> and that's not always as easy, is it? So the first half, you see that there's no pleasure in this life. So... So what does bring pleasure? Well, Solomon's going to answer that in the, in the second half of this, of this book. Chapter 3, you learn, which was in the first half of the book, God holds time in his grip and he works all things out, uh, works all things out as, as, as he sees fit. But what do I do when I, I follow God fully and blessings don't come? Or like the passage that we'll read this morning, I do everything right and and die early. Or what do I do with that wicked guy who who is just denying God and doing doing exactly the opposite and and he's being blessed? Well, Solomon will put us to the test and and he'll correct us if we we hit hit a cone of of self importance as we're we're trying to to parallel park the. The life under the sun. Solomon started last week by giving us the, some corrective lenses to help us to see what is good in, in, in living in a fallen world. He, he asked an insightful question at the end of, uh, of chapter six. Who knows what is, what is good for a man during his lifetime under the sun? And, and the obvious answer is, well, well, we don't. But the other 
part to that obvious answer is God does. Meaning, who can show a man or a woman how to live, how to live wisely? And, and, and he gives God's answer in, in, in the first half of, of chapter seven. What is good for, for a man or a woman is to look at life through this six-paned window that, that he, that, that he's already given us to, to, to face the reality of death, to, to receive a helpful rebuke, to, to understand the benefits of patience, to, to be satisfied with our circumstances, not look back and long for what was before, but, but live in the present, to, to, to pursue wisdom over wealth and, and then to be in submission to God in, in all things, whether it's prosperity or whether it's ad, adversity. That's, what Solomon tells us is good, a good way to live, a good way to, to interpret the things in life. Now in verse 15, which is where we're going to pick up this morning, in chapter 7, Solomon gives us a test. He gives us a test to see if we, if we got all of those things. And he does so by making several mind-bending observations here. Solomon forces us to observe... A, Apparent contradictions in life in, in verse 15. Nate read it for us. Then he instructs us to, to avoid two common conclusions that people come to in light of this, of these contradictions in verses 16 and 17. And he ends with giving us this, the harmonizing key to, to life under the sun in verse 18, fearing the Lord. And that's as far as we're going to get this morning. He's probably also going to help you answer some of the other conundrums of life that you come to. When, when you read a passage in the Bible and it says, it says something that seems very definitive and then very dogmatic, and then you, you find that sometimes God breaks that pattern. And you go, okay, what do I do with that? A soft word turns away, turns away wrath, and you, you gave a soft word to your husband or your wife and they still yelled at you. What do you do with that? <laughs> Now, if you, if you've read these passages before, or you read it ahead of time, you know that they can kind of leave you scratching your head. And, and if you read more than one commentary on this passage, you're just going to be utterly confused because people are all over the map. I mean, what does Solomon mean in verse 16? Don't be overly righteous or don't be excessively righteous. Or me, even more confusing, I think, is what does he mean in verse 17 when he says, don't be overly wicked? Does that mean that you can be a little bit wicked? <laughs> is that what Solomon say? I mean, how can God's word say, uh, tell us not to be overly righteous? I mean, is this the kind of the, the moderation in all things, even with godliness? Is that what Solomon Solomon means here? It's one of the reasons that, that people say this is, this, is, this is the voice of a cynic. I mean, Solomon's just disillusioned with life, so he's just saying, hey, look, just, just run it right straight down the middle. Don't get too far to the right or too far to the, to the left. Is that what Solomon's saying? Is he saying because of the vanity of life now after the fall, the best way to live is a mediocre Christian life? Just, just do what you gotta do to get by because it's vain to try anyway. Is that the message that Solomon's trying to get across? I hardly think so, because this book's already told us in, in chapter 5, verse 19, God says, for, for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he's, he's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. 
This is the good gift of God. Some who deny Solomonic authorship say this is just the influence of, of Greek philosophy that's, that's crept into the, to the Bible. They say this is, this is like the theology of Goldilocks. That's, that's Greek philosophy basically. Don't be too hot or too cold. Avoid the extremes and you'll be fine. Plato, Aristotle, others, and all of the, the folks that came before him. Don't outright reject God, but don't be a Jesus freak either. But that can't be true. Because Jesus says something about that in Revelation 3, doesn't he? Revelation 3.15, I know your deeds, he says to a church, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, running it right down the middle, middle, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's what God thinks about mediocre Christianity. But that's the way that many professing Christians live their, live their lives, isn't it? I have a relationship with God, but I don't need to go to church to maintain that relationship. I mean, isn't it enough to hear a sermon on Sunday morning? I mean, do I really need to read the Bible every day? I, I go most Sunday mornings, but, but I don't have to go every time the doors are open. Have you heard that before? Maybe you said that before. A little God, a, a little Bible, but, but not too much. Not so much that it pinches or alters my life. That's the way a lot of, of professing Christians live. Give a little, but not sacrificially where I, where I feel it. Why do that? I mean, God owns a, cattle's on a thousand hill. Why does he want mine? You know, I want to be a normal Christian. Does Solomon affirm that approach here? Well, I'm happy to tell you, no, he doesn't. When Jesus said, if any man does not deny himself, he cannot be my disciple, he was serious. You can't ride the fence with God. You can't keep one foot on the bank and the other on the life raft. Sin's current, the world's current is too strong. You have to be either in the boat or out. And when you practice good hermeneutics, what Solomon is saying here is, is quite clear. If you remember, the genre of Ecclesiastes is a wisdom book. This is a wisdom book. And so you also have, have already figured out up to this point in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon teaches his lessons of wisdom in what may seem like some unorthodox ways of of teaching. And if you understand that, it's pretty, it's pretty easy to, to know what Solomon is saying here. And I'm going to help you make, you make sense out of it. Remember, there are four wisdom books and each of them have a purpose. In each of those four wisdom books, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes and Job, all four of them have a, have like a gravitational pull that hold each of them in their, in their proper orbit. And together they, they provide a, a piece of the wisdom puzzle. And Ecclesiastes is just one of those. Song of Solomon teaches us how to, to live wisely in marriage with another sinner. Proverbs teaches us wise principles in all of life. It teaches us principles to follow for the good life. Job shows us what to do when life circumstances don't seem to fit in a in the nice, neat little Proverbs. What do you do whenever you follow Proverbs not to borrow money and you lose your savings anyway? 
And now Ecclesiastes comes along and gives us wisdom in light of these areas, in light of the curse. Ecclesiastes explains why Job got such a bad deal even though he followed Proverbs perfectly. And it also helps you make sense out of the twists and turns. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage today. In verses 15 through 18, Solomon describes the danger of a wrong view of God as you interpret life. And in verses 19 through 29, which we'll get to next time, shows the conclusions of bad anthropology. He outlines here the the limitations of our wisdom and and the futility of self-righteousness as we try to deal with, with the fall. In verse 15, there's a blessed sinner and a tormented saint. In verse 16, there's a manipulative religious maneuver to try to fix that. And then in verse 17, he warns us about a dangerous, deadly assumption. And he ends by showing us the starting point to to living well with, with the fall. And when you put all of that together, you have three clarifying cautions that help you avoid incorrect interpretations of life. Three clarifying cautions that help you avoid incorrect interpretations of life. And the first one is don't mistake a pattern for a promise or a principle for a promise in a fallen world. What you can get from verse 15. The second clarifying caution is don't attempt religion to manipulate God. It it won't work. And then verse 17, don't make the deadly assumption that you can mock the Lord. Let's look at the first one. If you miss that, you'll be able to write it down again. Three clarifying cautions. Here's the first one. The first clarifying caution is a pattern is not a promise in a fallen world. You need to remember that. When you're navigating life, you need to remember that a pattern is not a promise. Look if you would at verse 15. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Now, I want you to notice Solomon is back to talking about vanity and futility again, meaning he's drawing the boundaries around his observation. He's not observing life after the fall or after earth. He's observing life here and now, life under the sun. He's talking about this world in, in, the, in, in a Genesis 3 light. And he says he's observed what may seem like a gross contradiction. He's, as he's lived, he's seen a blessed sinner and a, and a tormented saint. He, he's seen, um, the good die young. And he's seen a sinner or a wicked man live a really long time. Just the opposite of what you would expect in, in life. Just the opposite of, of what the Bible seems to, to, to promise. And it's clearly a pattern. If you live according to scripture, there's a good possibility that you'll probably live a lot longer than somebody who goes out and abuses their body with drugs or alcohol or immorality or whatever it is. But that's not always the case, is it? George Burns 
drank whiskey and smoked a cigar all the way up to the end of his life. And I don't know how old that guy lived. He might be still alive. And you also know of some some people that have followed God and and done the right things and 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 they've died tragically or of a of a disease or something in their in their early years. Just the opposite of what you would expect. Sometimes the righteous suffer and sometimes the wicked prosper in a fallen world. Solomon observes here in verse 15 the rich man and Lazarus without being able to see beyond the grave. Wouldn't that, isn't that perplexing? If Luke 16 stopped and you weren't able to see into the bosom of Abraham, well, that's exactly what Solomon describes here. That's as far as our eyesight can go without the Bible, and it can seem confusing. The humble man who loves Christ is treated poorly, and the arrogant man who sins prospers at every turn. And when you see that, it leaves the Jeopardy music playing in your head sometimes, doesn't it? Like, what's going on? How do I answer that? You've ever wondered what to do with passages like Proverbs 10.3? The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he denies the craving of the wicked. And you say, I've been to Nepal. I've been to Africa. I've seen some hungry Christians. I've seen some wicked people also right here in America who, who have all their heart's desire. Or, or maybe Psalm 37.25. I've been young and now I am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. And you think, didn't the Apostle Paul say at the end of his life in my first defense... No one has stood with me, but all deserted me. Didn't the Lord Jesus Christ go to the cross alone? (laughs) He was the most righteous one ever. And everyone deserted him. What about Job? Will you follow the same pattern as Job's friends and assume that the reason that Job got the hammer was because he had some secret sin in his life? What do you do with these seeming contradictions? The family that sacrifices for God by giving extra every week to help the church budget, but then sued by, by someone trying to make a buck and they lose everything. Or the opposite. The immoral person that seems to live a happy life. Do you conclude like Job's friends? Here's the temptation to conclude like Job's friends. That there must be some hidden sin in that giving family who gave but, but lost the lawsuit. God must be bringing payback. Because when you do right, good always comes. And that's a pattern. But that pattern's not always a promise in a fallen world. It's, it, it's kind of like following your mother's theology. Whenever you got a spanking by your mom and it, it turned out to be that you, know, you were, you were, you were found innocent. Maybe your, your little sister screamed, he's touching me, he's touching me. And you're all the way on the other side of the room and your mother walks in and gives you the, gives you the hammer. <laughs> and then she finds out that your little sister's doing that. What does your mom say? Well, you must have got away with one some other time, so, I, so, so, so that fills in the gaps, right? Is that how we think? It is how we think. 
Well, to understand what Solomon is saying here, you need to get, you need to, 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 to take the on-ramp for these verses that begins in verse 14. That's the context. Look back at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be happy, and in the day of adversity, consider. What are we to consider, Solomon? That God has made the one as well as the other. Why? So that we'll not discover anything that will be after him. So we'll trust God. And now Solomon tests that. I've seen everything during my lifetime of futility. And here is the seeming contradiction. Solomon has just called us to submit to God's sovereignty, both universally in the curse and what he allows personally in our lives. Sometimes God brings prosperity. Sometimes he allows adversity. But in both cases, whatever God mingles together in your life, it's so that we will trust him. And that's the point of verse 14. Submit to God's sovereignty, whatever comes. You don't know what's coming. You can't control what's coming. So you must trust God. That's the context for verse 15. And now he gives a specific example to test whether we really believe that or not. Do you believe that God is the one who controls both prosperity and adversity? That he's made the one as well as the other? And that he's still good? And that he can be entrusted, that he can be trusted? Or do we question the Lord? Do we believe that he is in control? When you sit at an airport all day, boarding and unboarding planes, only to find that the flight crew timed out after you had finally been given a wheels up time eight hours later. And then after you drive 13 hours to get back home, you find your car in the Lynchburg Regional Airport parking lot is dead. And you have to get a tow truck that puts your truck on a flatbed and then drives your truck into a tree whenever they're leaving the parking lot. Not that that happened to me on Thursday or anything preparing for this message. It did. You see, it's it's one thing to say that you believe God is in control when things are good and when things fall into, into the pattern. It's quite another thing whenever things that we don't expect happen. God is sovereign and he gives us a pattern in his word and we can rest in it, but patterns are not promises and sometimes he breaks the pattern and he's free to break the pattern whenever he chooses to break the pattern, right? And when he does, it's okay. Everything doesn't fall apart. Don't panic. Or take matters into your own hands. You can trust him. Verse 15 is the whole book of Job in one verse, isn't it? (laughs) Because of the curse, even when you follow God, the wicked can prosper and the righteous can die, uh, die young. But even then, God can be trusted. This is not some random contradiction in the Bible. It is a needful nugget of wisdom. It's not Solomon embracing nothing really matters or because he's dark or depressed. It's helping you understand verse 14. Because if you don't, you can get really messed up in your approach to God and you can try to manipulate him with zealous behavior. 
And that's the second clarifying caution. Don't attempt religion to manipulate God. We'll give you what at verse 16. Don't be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Now, that doesn't sound very strange at all after we follow the context, does it? He makes this warning after pointing out the guy who follows God and dies anyway, and also the guy who lives like a wretch, but but his life is extended for a long time. Solomon is not rebuking real righteous living here. He says, don't think your efforts are the ultimate key to, to, to getting what you want from God, even if your efforts are, are right living. He says, God will not be manipulated. You see, some people think that if you live good enough, nothing bad will, will ever happen. And, and if you, if you live good enough, even more good will come. Isn't that exactly what you see Jesus dealing with, with, with the Jewish people and the Pharisees? Whenever the disciples come upon somebody who, who has a, uh, some kind of disease, you know the first, you know, remember the first question that they asked? Who sinned? This guy or his parents? Somebody must have sinned for this to take place. Or you look at the, you look at the Pharisees. God gives the law and they add 15 or 20 to it in order to be more and more, more and more righteous. It, it was a, it was a perversion of the law. The law is good. But if the law is good, adding some myself might make it even better. And it, and in doing that, it, it may cause God to, to bring me even, even more blessing. Or it surely would keep God from, from, from not bringing something bad in my life. And that's exactly what Solomon is, is dealing with, with here. Some people think that you can practically, practically force God to do what you want if you just do right or do enough right. The idea with this excessively righteous man under the surface is the, is the idea that our efforts can, can make God bless us or that somehow that, that your relationship with God or God works on some quid pro quo basis. You've heard that term a lot lately in the last few weeks, haven't you? If I do this, then God's obligated to do that. Which is why people, again, conclude if that doesn't happen, then there must be some some hidden sin in my life. I'm out on the golf course and I get hit with a golf ball. Uh, what have I done this past week? God's punishing me. And Solomon says, never imagine your efforts control God, even righteous ones. You don't... God will not follow you. He leads you. You've seen the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. <laughs> He's not your co-pilot. He created the atmosphere that you fly in and, and holds it in the, in, the, in the palm of his hands. He can do whatever he pleases. This verse describes the principle that, that's, that's the underpinning, the entire underpinnings of the health wealth gospel. Here's the health wealth gospel in a nutshell in verse 16. The rebuke of it. 
Righteousness brings God blessing. The more uh, brings blessings. The more righteous you are, the more God is obligated to bless you. The more faith you have, the more prosperity that will that will come. Isn't that naturally the way we think? Maybe we don't say it outwardly, but it's what we think when we work hard, and God doesn't give us what we think we deserve. In our hearts, we cry. That's not fair. Jesus deals with that in the parable of the hired workers in Matthew 20, doesn't he? You remember that parable? Where he hires a man in the morning, in early, early part of the morning, and he says, you go work in my field and I'll give you uh, a denarii, a denarius. And then he goes out and finds somebody standing around. What are you standing around for? You want to work? Yeah, 9 a.m. He does the same thing at noon and 3, but... If you remember the story, he doesn't tell those guys what he'll pay him. He tells the first guy, you work for me, I'll give you a denarius. And the 9 a.m., the noon, and the 3 p.m., even a guy that starts work at 5 p.m., God says, you work for me, or the, the, the master says, you work for me, and I will give you what is right at the end of, of the day. And then it comes time for payday. And the guy that starts at 5 o'clock comes first in the line. And then the, the three o'clock in the noon and the nine o'clock, the guy that, that was hired early in the morning that already had been promised one denarius, he's at the end of the line. And he watches the guy at five, that started at five PM go to the master and the master gives him one denarius. You remember this story? And so the guy, and then the same thing for the next guy. So well, the guy in the back that started early in the morning says, man, I am going to get a raise, right? And he comes to the end, and he gives him one denarius. And then the man gets upset. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but what's the master say? Wait a minute. Did you not agree to work for one denarius? Why is is the evil going on in your heart being perpetrated on me? I, I, I'm I'm good. Not evil. We think that the more we give, the the more we get from God. And we need to remember what we deserve from God is hell. And anything beyond that is grace and mercy. So don't get upset whenever you do righteous things. You're you're only doing what you should be commanded to do. You're, you're, You're just a faithful slave, worthless slave. The more righteous we are, the more God's temporal blessings will come. But Solomon says that's Benny Hinn theology, not the Bible. And Solomon says that you can't put God on a leash like that. He does whatever he chooses and whatever he does is good. And we don't even deserve the one denarius, much less more. Thinking that way comes from a misinterpretation of the Bible. The righteousness that he's talking about here is not true godliness, but an outward behavior that comes from a misinterpretation of of the law. And in Scripture, you have to keep everything in, in context. Solomon says don't miss the point and think the more that you do, the more you get because you can't manipulate God with with religion. He establishes God breaks the pattern sometimes in verse 15. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long, uh, may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Verse 15 asks, is that always the case? 
Do you know someone who treated their Christian parents horribly and is fine today? Probably so. Solomon forces us to ask questions like, did God always shorten the life of the child that disobeyed his parents? Did Israel always get what they deserved in order to make sure our trust is in God and not, not some religious formula? And while God's law makes some very explicit statements, your focus must be on the one who, who gave the law. And when he alters the pattern, you must trust him. And now right here he says, don't think that you can control the pattern by your own efforts. This is the wisdom that Israel forgot and the religion became the religion of the Pharisees. Why did John the Baptist need to come? Because the Israelites stopped practicing the law or keeping the feast or the, or the rituals? They were doing all of those. They were doing quite well in all of those. He came to call them to repentance because they kept the law outwardly, but, but in their heart, God didn't have their heart. And like the Pharisees, some went to extra steps. And in those extra steps, they thought that that would become would cause them to become more righteous before God and gain his favor. Now, Paul tells us the law's not bad. It's the curse in our heart that's the problem. But there are no outward rituals or practices, no matter how many you do, that can bring you closer to God. In fact, it can ruin your life. Look at verse 16. Don't be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? He tells you what's going to happen if you, if you try to practice your Christianity this way. It's going to ruin you. Extremes in, in righteous rituals will only bring the wearing out of the body. It, it won't change a thing. I can remember when my pastor saved me from this pit. I came to Christ. I was very zealous. I wanted to serve God with, with all of my heart. I mean, when, when the pastor told me every morning that people were dying and going to, to hell unless I shared the gospel with him, I believed it because that's where I was. And, and, and so I would do all kinds of things in order to try to get the gospel to people. Preach on the street. Walk right into bars and, 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 and sit down on a bar stool beside somebody and, and, and share the gospel with a person. I foolishly knocked on a strip club door one day and shared Christ with the, with, with the guy in, inside. And in my context, it was very effort oriented. You want God to save someone? You prayed and prayed until he moved. I mean, that's what you heard from the pulpit. You want God to move? Then you sought him with all of your heart. And, and, and the more you sought him, the more apt he was to answer. And there's some truth mingled in there, isn't there? You want revival? Pray until heaven comes down. And if revival doesn't come, it's because you're not praying hard enough. Not the reality that revival is a move of God that he brings whenever he chooses. I, I later learned that, that all of this was wrapped up in this Keswick or deeper life theology. I wanted to see people saved, so I started fasting. And once I did, I kept going. I would go three days and I would think, well, I mean, if, if three days were good, I mean, then, then seven days would be even better. And once while, while I was doing this, I, I'd heard somewhere, I won't tell you where, that, that if, 
that if God wanted to bless your ministry, if you wanted God to bless your ministry, then, then you should fast 40 days like the people did in the Bible. And so I started. And partway through, I was in great turmoil. I was working a full-time job, and you know, I, I had a wife, and I don't remember how old Bailey was. He was, he was, he was pretty young. And, and I can remember going to my pastor just, just in turmoil, trying to, trying to do this. And I can remember what he said. He said, "Brian, God's not going to bless your ministry." If you fast 40 days because it's his ministry, it's not going to matter whether you fast 40 days or whether you fast four minutes. It's, it's, you're a slave of Christ. It's, it's his work. It's not yours. You just be willing and he'll use you. My pastor saved me from this great error. Solomon says the answer is not try harder or double down on the law, but humble yourself and receive God's grace through Christ. Be obedient to what the Lord has given you, but don't think more and more and more ritual or, or, or take whatever God says, and if you do it twice as much, that somehow that's going to get God to answer. But don't take that too far and conclude that you can live any way you want because God's not trifled with. Here's number three. The third clarifying caution is is don't make the deadly assumption that you can mock the Lord. Look at verse 17. He turns the coin over. Don't be excessively wicked. Don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Joe James said, um, don't think that you can manipulate God in verse 16 and don't think the exception is the is the rule. Solomon now turns the coin over and says, just because God doesn't operate on some quid pro quo pattern, don't think that that the way you live doesn't matter. Don't forget that sin has real consequences. Don't forget Proverbs is still generally true. Don't think because the curse throws curves that and God sometimes alters the pattern that you can live contrary to the Bible and and get away with it. Don't think that you can mock God and disregard his word because he's good. And he doesn't bring a hammer down on sin. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6, isn't it? Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And Solomon says, is that always the case? And he says, pattern, principle, yes. But God and his sovereignty can break the pattern. For what the one sows to his own flesh will from his flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we don't grow weary. Notice how he starts, God will not be mocked. How do you do that? Well, he tells us by thinking that you can sow seeds of wickedness and and they won't bring a harvest one day. That's what he's addressing in verse 17. Solomon says, don't be excessively wicked and, and don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? 
There is a law of blessing and consequences. You reap what you sow. Cause and effect is in the law, even though God sometimes chooses to alter that. But just because he does, and the lightning bolt doesn't come, don't think that the hammer won't fall eventually, because it will. John MacArthur says, said one time about pastors who fall in the pulpit or big-name people that you see, When a man falls, he doesn't fall far, meaning that he's already close to the ground. And what you see on the outside may may look nice and pretty, but but that person that falls, that's finally exposed, there's been a a downward descent. In, In the same way, Solomon says, don't think... Because God is storing up wrath and storing up wrath and being long-suffering and not bringing about the consequences, that somehow that means that you're going to escape them. Solomon says, don't be a fool and die before your time. You say, okay, I see that. But that kind of leaves me wondering, like, is there some rudder here that governs life? To know when to push the gas pedal and to know when to apply the brake? Is there is there something that will help me know how to navigate the fall, my heart's tendencies to do these things? Well, yeah, that's exactly how Solomon ends. View it at verse 17, or verse 18. It is good that you grasp one thing and also not let the other go. For the one who, here's the rudder, fears the Lord comes forth with both of them. What's both of them? Well, he just told us. The fear of the Lord brings the balance to both. That's the key. He, he says it will help you grab and hold on to two things. And the two things is what he just got done teaching us, that God's in control. He can break the pattern and he'll not be manipulated even when he does. And that consequences are certain. God's in control. And consequences are certain. And it's the fear of the Lord that that allows us to keep both of those things in balance. To keep one in one hand and one in the other as you as you walk in in this in this life that throws you curves. The magnetic field that holds them in balance is the fear of the Lord. To fear God, to revere God, is to respect Him, to be in awe in Him. And that will keep us under him even when these, these winds blow and from the north whenever we expect them to come from the, from the south. Solomon says, if you live in ways that honor God, it will go well with you. But it's not always the case in a fallen world. So the Lord must be your aim. So fear him. The antidote to confusion is the beginning of wisdom. Doesn't that make sense? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what is wisdom? The ability to put God's word in practice in life. To be able to practically apply the Bible and the beginning of that, even when these twists and turns come, the beginning of that is the fear of the of the Lord. Verse 18 is... Uh, is a preview of Solomon's conclusion to the entire book. Solomon says, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That's what you normally do. 
Because God will bring everything into judgment. Meaning he'll level the scale, he'll straighten it out, and so in the end, it'll all come out right. Ecclesiastes helps you see the world rightly. It invites you to submit to God's sovereignty and the curse. It leads you to turn and savor Christ. And it helps you realize that security comes in the end when God will straighten out what is crooked. Until then, we live in the crooked while we lay hold of Jesus Christ. Why don't you bow your heads? You're here this morning, and um, life's still fairly empty to you. You need to heed Solomon's wisdom for the first. It comes from the first part of this book. You need to. You need to come to Jesus Christ. You're looking for satisfaction in in the wrong place. It only comes in Him. And if you're a Christian and you've you've found some things that are perplexing. You need to heed Solomon's wisdom in our passage today. You need to you need to fear the Lord. You need to trust in Him. And by trusting in Him, you can navigate when contrary winds blow. But sometimes that's hard. And so God gives us His Word to, to help us to trust Him. Father, as we come before You, I thank You for Your truth. I thank You for how clear it is. I think even passages like this that seem quirky and like, what does that mean? That you have helped us, you've given us rules of interpretation to rightly divide the word of truth, and whenever we do, it's so plain. Thank you for giving us this book. Thank you for giving us hearts that love you. Thank you for the fear of the Lord, which helps us to begin the process of wisdom, begin the process of of living and applying truth in our lives. Help us to do that even more. And I pray, Father, if someone's here this morning that's never never come to Christ and they're still searching and looking elsewhere, that even today they might come and bow the knee, repent and believe, and begin to live for Jesus. It's in His name we pray.